Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast, where we go ad fontes to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is, as he has revealed himself to us. My name is Tyler, I'm your host, and we'll be continuing our trek in the Song of Solomon. We've been in this book for a couple weeks now, and we are yet to finish chapter one. There has not been much of a rush here. I'm, I'm just trying to walk through it piece by piece and see what God shows us. I'm glad that you would join me on that journey as we consider the excellencies of Christ in a book that's very strange to some of us. It's very different from how we talk. And so, away we go. We'll be picking up in verse um, 8 today. It says, If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you, accented with silver. So that is the text we are considering today. Uh, for the purpose of reiteration, let's back up a couple of verses to the question of the church woman, of the woman who is the type of the church in the story. Tell me, you whom I love, where do you pastor your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? And then verse 8, 9, and 10, and 11 are the response of the husband, of the man in the story. So the church woman has expressed a dissatisfaction with herself, uh, with her circumstances, and longs to be with the husband, as opposed to lesser men, as we talked about last week, with the imagery of veiling yourself, of going to play the role of the harlot, essentially. And so the Christ figure now responds in a way that identifies the concerns raised by the woman, but also shows how he is better than the substitutes. If you do not know, most beautiful of women, we sometimes need to be reminded, don't we? Isaiah 40 says, Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my claim is ignored by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. Christ 
reminds us. He reminds her, and by de default, he reminds us that the church is the one he has set his eye on. He has set his love upon her and no other. But that carries with it certain realities. Um, Amos chapter 3 says, Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. I have known only you. We talked about this um, verse a couple weeks ago. That, that word known um, in Hebrew is yada. And yada implies a sexual intimacy. That it is comparable to... Um, to marital relations in the same way that it says in Genesis, Adam knew his wife. It's the same Hebrew concept, and so God is poetically describing his relation to Israel within the confines of marriage. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. We're not talking about knowledge um, like in here. We're talking about knowing someone as they are, knowing them intimately, deeply. We're talking about knowing someone in here, in the heart out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. That is a jump. But that is the context of Amos, is that they had forsaken the ways of God. They had forsaken the husband and gone after idols, gone after lesser substitutes. And so Amos is rebuking them for that. Deuteronomy 4 says, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of anything he has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And when we read that God is jealous, we're not talking about human jealousy, about spite and envy. We're talking about a God who will not share. A God who will not share his people with anyone. That he wants all of us completely. He will not share his glory with another. He will not share his people with another God. And so what counsel does Christ offer his bride in light of all of that? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tent. And so here we have something that mirrors verse 7. Verse 7 says, Where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? She, she's looking for him. She wants to know, where are you? And says, why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? That is, a, that is a negative illustration there of where are the sheep. But the husband gives a positive. He uses that language in a positive sense. That Because we're talking about two different things. We're talking about two places, two different ways. That there are two ways about this. The way of verse 7 and the way of verse 8. Proverbs 4.10 says, Listen, my son, and accept my words, and you will live many years. I am teaching you the way, that's way, not ways, way of wisdom. I am guiding you on straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let go. Guard it, for it is your life. Keep off the path of the wicked. Don't proceed on the way of evil ones. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn away from it and pass it by. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. 
and what is the fruit of that? And he shall be like a tree, planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That is what we do when we are connected to the source. That's not a blanket approval that we will get whatever we want. That is tied to our pursuit, that is tied to our delight in God. The wicked, it says, are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind driveth away. Therefore the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The CSB says that the way of the wicked shall lead to ruin. That is the gravity of what, what we're talking about here, that there are two ways, but they do not go to the same place. Two ways, two destinations. Luke 9.23 says, If anyone wants to follow after me, these are the words of Christ, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? From the lips of our Lord, there are two ways. Save your life or lose it. That is where we are. This is where the rubber meets the crooked road. Which way are you going to go? The didact, the earliest teaching resource outside of the, the biblical canon that we have from the early church, dated approximately 170 AD, I believe is the estimate there, says there are two ways. One is the way of life, the other is the way of death. And there is a mighty difference between these two ways. Proverbs 14 build, um, is what that is building on. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. This is, there is weight to these two verses with the sheep and the flocks and the companions because the teleos, the end, is not the same for each one. There is a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to death. There's a way that leads to the husband and there's a way that leads to lesser substitutes, to the world, to idolatry, to, to sin. And they are not the same thing. So when the woman says, tell me, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who avails herself besides the flocks of your companions, of others? So what are the two paths? The, the imagery of a veil calls to mind the story of Tamar, in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, who disguised herself as a prostitute to exploit Judah. And I will not walk through that story today, but if you want to look it up, it is in Genesis, I believe, chapter 38. But the reality is that the idea of a veil is used in Hebrew poetry often to describe something bad. This is not a good indication. This is not something that, this is, this should throw up red flags here. And that's something Hebrew poetry is very good about doing through um, specific words, is 
raising red flags just by the way words are used. Uh, when you see in Genesis 3 that Eve saw, that the woman saw that the fruit on the tree of knowledge of good and evil was appealing to the eye and it was useful for obtaining wisdom, um, that becomes a thread through much of the Old Testament that seeing something's beauty usually involves something bad happening. And that is, that is, that's the kind of patterns we see in the Old Testament. Likewise, the image of a veil. That imagery is used to um, draw connections to exploitation, to very bad practices that we should not try to emulate. And so this illustration is a strong one. Ought the church woman make do with lesser husbands and play the, the harlot? No. For the cross and the resurrection presents the elect of God as his bride. We are wed to Christ by the gospel, which is the person and work of Christ. In a sense, God is the gospel. St. Ambrose of Milan, of Milan, I'm sorry, once said, If therefore the union of Adam and Eve is a great sacrament which relates to Christ and the church, it is certain that as Eve was bone of the bones of her husband and flesh of his flesh, so we are members of the body of Christ, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. What Ambrose is illustrating there is marriage has a deeper meaning than just the husband and the wife. That ultimately marriage is the gospel. And so when we give one another in marriage, we are emulating the gospel. We are illustrating the gospel. That marriage was instituted by God as an illustration of what Christ would do for us, would do with us, that we would be united to Christ so we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Why? By the cross of Christ, by the resurrection, by his ascension, we are brought near who were once far off. And we are brought into his family not as um, illegitimate children, not as people that were just, just lucky. We are brought in as though we are married. That's a weird illustration for us sometimes, but that is the illustration of Scripture. I've repeatedly thrown out this verse in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that um, I am jealous with you with a godly jealousy because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. That's the church. That's us. That Paul is earnest. He is resolved to present the church to God in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Different language, similar concept as here in Song of Solomon with veiling oneself beside the flocks of the companions. Ephesians 5. Paul, Paul was speaking to Corinth in that last one, who has entertained false apostles and has therefore wed themselves to a gospel that is false. But Ephesians 5 is about the church in a different way. It's about building up the church, not just in who they are as people, but who they are as the body. That Ephesians deals with humanity as the one and the many, which is something only the biblical worldview 
adequately deals with is who we are as individuals and who we are as part of a bigger community. But Ephesians chapter 5 says, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedience because of these things. Therefore do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are, in, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up sleeper and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is what we have been brought into through Christ. This is not something we have the ability to enact. This isn't something that we initiated. Christ made us his. The Christ figure implores the churchwoman to follow the paths of different flocks, to dwell near different tents than what seems reasonable, what seems almost necessary, you would say. Now, you might be tempted to follow the path of verse 7, to make do with whatever is available, to drop standards and make do with what's right in front of you, to create your own solutions. But Christ says, no, there is a better way, and that way leads to me. So follow the path of different flocks and dwell near different tents. This is the better way this passage in Song of Solomon transitions from the negative to the positive. For Christ is greater than the alternative. Ambrose comments, He, being Paul, tells us likewise that wives should be subject to their husbands, as the church is to Christ, and that husbands should offer up their own lives for their wives, as Christ gave himself for the church. And lastly, that as good soldiers, we should put on the armor of God and continually fight, not only against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness, that we may neither be corrupted by friends nor vanquished by enemies. In other words, we've got to get, we've got to get our eyes pointed the right way. What is really at stake here? What is really going on? Are we perceiving things the way Scripture tells us to? Are we seeing the sheep as the way to life, or are we seeing the flocks of the companions and thinking that's the way to life? That's much of what's going on. Oftentimes we are deceived into thinking we're on the path of verse 8, but really we're going down verse 7. And we know that verse 8 is positive, because while the language seems the same, the reason I believe that it is something different ontologically is because of the way the man describes the woman. If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the flock and pastor your young goats in the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my darling, to a mare. That's a horse. To a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. His regard for the churchwoman is rooted in love and care. He points her to truth. This is not some fictional woman that a fictional man is playing games with. This is Christ 
and his church, whom he died to purchase with his own blood. There is value here that is, that is being stressed. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry. Your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you, accented with silver. If we back up to verse 6, we see that the woman is very displeased with her appearance and feels that she is unworthy of this attention, of this love that she is in. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. She voices the, uh, a level of insecurity, of dissatisfaction with herself, with her circumstances. And the man responds by reminding her that she has value to him, that she is not less. Because this is the church, that we are seen as pure and beautiful in Christ's eyes because of what he has done to make us so. John Gill comments, the church, they, the church, are brought with the precious, are bought with the precious blood of the unblemished and spotless Son of God. They are bought for the service of the King of Kings, and at no less a rate than the than at the expense of his own life and blood. The ransom which is given for them is himself. Oh, how valuable must they be to Christ, and how much must they be esteemed by him. This is the Christ who gave himself for her, for us. He has adorned us, it says, with with gold jewelry accented with silver. Composite metals like that, that is significant. That has a certain weight to it because it's more expensive. It's harder to get, especially in that, that ancient world. Um, we talked a couple weeks ago about Zechariah and the, the two-tone crown. And it's a sim similar idea that we are talking about very ornate jewelry because Christ has decorated his bride with goodness, with righteousness, with light. He has brought things to us that we didn't possess. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. These are things that we have in Christ. This is part of us being in Christ, being united with Christ, is there are things that exist in us that are not naturally there. That's why they're called gifts. God has given us his righteousness, that we are counted as righteous. Not because we have righteousness of our own, but we are counted as righteous in Christ. That is the, the immense mercy of God. And that is the picture that's being painted by Solomon here, is how deeply God loves his people. Consider Psalm 136. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him who alone doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. Consider this Jesus. 
who purchased your redemption with his blood, that you would be reconciled to himself as his co-heir and inheritance. Ponder the riches of his grace in passing over your sins, past and future. Revel on the character of Christ, who has made you his own to the praise of his own glorious name, and who has made the mysteries of himself known to all who seek his face. Consider the Christ, the Son of the living God, who is the husband of the Song of Solomon, the husband who loves his wife so much that he gave himself up for her. This is the Christ we profess. This is the Christ that we worship. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4